three men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom, now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to the exciting, explosive, exclusive, and essential episode 50 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Currently celebrating our 50th episode in the most necessary and non-indulgent way possible by adding an ultra-rare issue of Wizard, the guide to comics, to the archives that was a giveaway at a San Diego Padres MLB All-Star Fan Fest event in 1992. I'm Adam. And if he had a comic book equivalent, it would definitely be Oracle. Always saving the day by providing tech support and essential intel. It's Michael. I guess so. <laughs> sure. I feel great. like off the show, that is what we're always hearing about. I gotta do some tech oh. support today. Yeah, seriously. Finally, it's the man who's most likely dreamt of inventing time travel with the sole intention of buying Jack Kirby a Reuben's sandwich at a New York diner in 19. 62 as a thank you for his work in creating the fantastic four of course it's steven hey there quick question so what's in a reuben again is that like pastrami on rye yeah some sauerkraut i think okay this sounds great let's make it happen if you find a time machine on ebay please buy it (laughs) (laughs) well i think napoleon dynamite has one you can borrow (laughs) oh gosh all right but uh Keep in mind, everybody, this is 50 main episodes. If you take into account, like, our Wizards Half mini-episodes, the Wizard Files bonus movie reviews, and our YouTube videos, it's more like 150. I mean, we've had some great guests along the way, had some wild adventures, and most of all, become great friends. Steven, we missed you. Thanks for coming back. I'm excited to be back. I'm glad this finally worked out. With my crazy schedule and your guys' crazy schedule. You know, while you were gone, we should have just sent you a few letters, so I think it's time we open up... Willie Lumpkin's mailbag. (laughs) Your delivery on that was... You still got it, baby. So Jim McLaughlin starts off the letter section in this issue by announcing the winner of a non-contest he created in issue 46, asking readers to supply the lyrics to the 1960s Spider-Man cartoon theme song. Out of over 100 physical letters mailed in, the winner ended up being the first ever email correspondence printed in magic words, sent through the net by Seth Johnson, a college student with an email address from the University of Wisconsin. From this point forward, Many letters printed contain an email address. Oh, wow. That's kind of a fun fact. Yeah. Was like an AOL address that they had as their first email address? It was the whole office? Yeah. They did tell us uh, many times in the Wizard Files interviews that it would be like whiz and your name at AOL.com. Yeah. <laughs> I think at one point somebody said, like, initially they had one email address for the entire company. Well, it was hard to get email addresses back then. Like, if you had an AOL account, you could only have, what, like four or five? Yeah, something like four or five users, yeah. Yeah. Good old (laughs) dial-up. Those were the days. Reader Doyle Clark writes in to ask jokingly, Dear Wizard, has there ever been a red or a yellow lantern? And Wizard's response, yes, 
They teamed with Green Lantern right there in your hometown of Aaron, Tennessee, in a group they called the Stoplight Corps. For years, they were the protectors of the city, regulating automobile traffic and making the streets safe for pedestrians everywhere. Then the mill closed down, people moved out of town, traffic decreased, and they were replaced by a stop sign never to be seen again. <laughs> so, I just think it's funny, guys, that they're asking about a red or a yellow lantern, because we do know that years later, there was a trend of multi-hued lanterns in comics in the mid-2000s. How many lanterns were there, Michael? Okay, I have all the lantern rings, actually. What?! Yeah, I do. They were giving them away when when they were doing Blackest Night and Brightest cool. Day and Sinestro Wars. So let me go get them. Hold on. I, I have them right next to me. <laughs> I had them as well. Was this like around 2011? Before the New 52, like 2010. Hold on. I'll get them. Wow. You too, Steven. That's interesting. So yeah. was, was it just like when you went to the store and you bought a certain issue they gave it to you? Or they just had so many of them? They're like, hey, you want one of these? If I remember correctly, Midtown Comics just had a ton of them in a okay. box. And you can get them for free. Okay, yes. So they were giving them away initially for free, and then comic shops got wise and started selling them for like a quarter or 50 cents. Obviously, you have the traditional Green Lantern. Then you have the Star Sapphires, which was the pink. Then you had the Yellow Lanterns, which was the Sinestro core. Then you had the Blue Lanterns, Hope was their thing. Then they had the Indigo Lanterns, which was for Compassion. And then you had the Red Lanterns for Rage. Then you had the Orange Lanterns for Avarice. And it was only one Orange Lantern. And anybody he would kill like became like appendages of his Whoa. and like additional lanterns but they're like almost made of, of the lantern energy then you had the black lanterns which was anybody that was dead that came back to life and then you had the white lantern then most recently they came out with another lantern that basically can harness any color in the spectrum that they want depending on their emotional state the mood lantern <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the fact that I could go, Michael, can you please name all the members of Wildcats? No. Can you name all the Lanterns? Why, yes. Yet I have props. <laughs> <laughs> I will take a picture of him so we can put it on social media. All right. What's next here, though, Stephen? This issue's Market Watch section finds longtime editor Mark Wilkowski handing over the reins of the section to John Warren, the new senior price guide editor, who answers a letter about the value of a book that a reader named David Lee of Silver Springs Missouri found in his pile of old comic books. David Lee says, Dear Wizard, I was looking through my old comic books when I found Action Comics number one. I saw it was worth $125,000 in the Wizard Annual and was wondering what I should do with it. Should I sell it or keep it? And who would buy it if I chose to sell it? David Lee, Silver Springs, Maryland. Who is reading Wizard Magazine, finds an Action Comics number one, is like, oh, what do I do with this? Oh my god. So their response is, first thing you need to do is make sure you have an original, not a reprint. Over the years, Action Comics number one has been reprinted numerous times, with some of the reprints being identical to the original except for dimensions. If your copy measures approximately eight and a quarter inches by ten and three quarters inches high, then you're in luck. The reprint that most commonly turns up measures ten inches by thirteen inches. Okay, assuming you don't have the reprint, explain how it is you found such a valuable comic in your old comic books without knowing you had it. Geez, to sell it or keep it is up to you. 
you. If you decide to sell it, just about any of the advertisers in the Wizard Annual will be eager to take out a mortgage on their home just to buy it from you, as would tons of collectors scattered around the U.S. I mean, Nicolas Cage probably would, right? Yeah. Pick up the phone and start dialing or attend a major comic book convention such as San Diego Comic-Con. You'll be amazed at the commotion you stir up when word gets out that you have a book like that for sale. Yeah. And here's what's cr- I mean, what is this book going for now? Because $125,000 seems like a, a bargain based on oh, price. Yeah. For I think last on. time it sold was around $4 million. That sounds right. That would have been a good investment. It's kind of like, David, hold on to it that's what he should have said yeah, <laughs> one would think yeah it, recently in 2021 it sold for 3.25 million well if david had held on to that particular issue i think it would have made headlines and that means it's time to get into <laughs> wizard news <laughs> Was it 1010 10 wins again? I don't know. I've been listening to a lot of 1010 10 wins with them driving in the car for four <laughs> hours a day. Oh, God. By the way, Adam, 1010 10 wins is a local news station that just plays the same news on repeat every, all, what? All, all news, all the time. Uh, and my dad would listen to it in the car the entire drive. Like, if we were dri- like taking a two-hour drive, at a certain point, you're like, it's the same news story over and over again. Like, yeah, it's enough. Know. And every 11 minutes, they give you traffic and weather. You know what? It's 22 minutes because they're tagline was you give us 22 minutes we'll give you we'll give you the world (laughs) cue the going off theme song I had to point out the reference that Michael was clearly making that he didn't realize he was making. I was. <laughs> All right, Michael. <laughs> I've been up since 4.45. All right. Our top story tonight, when Titans Clash announces the upcoming crossover between the Incredible Hulk and Pitt from Image Comics. Of course, Pitt creator Dale Keown gained acclaim for his work on the Incredible Hulk while collaborating with Peter David, who will be writing this one shot and promises, I will treat Pitt with the utmost respect and not have the Hulk hand pit his head in the first five minutes. <laughs> what do you think about it here? It's like if we're having the image ripoffs now battle their Marvel counterparts, I want Nightwatch versus Spawn. I want that crossover ASAP. Do you guys remember Nightwatch? I do. He was like in backups in Spider-Man comics, and then he got his own title for a little while, and he was 100% just spawn like it was so blatant and it just cracked me up i think they're bringing that character back what yeah i think so that would be fascinating i think i've seen pieces of it speaking of spidey it's announced that for the month of november 1995 peter parker at this time recently outed as the real spider clone will become the scarlet spider while ben riley who was revealed to be the genetic original will take over the mantle of spider-man spider books editor bob budiansky says that riley will be struggling with creating his own identity in order to not be mistaken for peter parker while living in new york that is so bizarre like i can understand ben riley becoming spider-man which he does permanently for like a year or so but why would peter parker decide to be the scarlet spider he's like i just love that hoodie 
Yeah, really. <laughs> well, Ben Riley got a reboot today. He's got a new oh. number one that just came out today. So. What costume is wow. he wearing? He's wearing the same costume that Spider-Girl Mayday Parker okay. wears. Yeah, his classic. Cool. Man, people will be nostalgic for anything nowadays. <laughs> and and also, Silk just got a new number one as well, which is another Spider character. And I just also heard that Spider-Punk is also getting a, a reboot. Okay, now you're just messing around. Spider-Punk, no, 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 no. come on. I'm dead serious. <laughs> Joe just showed it to me like five minutes before the podcast started. I have a theory. Here's another theory, guys. Buckle up for this one. I believe that Marvel is relaunching all of these various characters because they're going to be in the animated Spider-Verse movie. Oh, hey, it makes sense. That could be it. Well, let's find (laughs) out if this story ever gets an adaptation, Stephen. So, in more Peter news, or Peter David news, the veteran writer is finally getting to publish the last Avengers story he wrote back in the late 80s, a tale of the team's demise in their old age, which was inspired by Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns, why did it take so long? The story was was originally approved by editor-in-chief Jim Shooter, but after he was ousted for Tom DeFalco, David's new boss wanted to make it a big fight issue. And since he had no interest in DeFalco's vision, the story was shelved. Marvel would later do a whole run of the end comic stories featuring the last days of iconic heroes in the mid-2000s. But this definitely predates that trend. I have no memory of this story. I mean, it got collected. It was like a two-issue, like, prestige format thing. So, so somebody weird. read it. You know, like, like the Avengers were not that cool in the 90s. No, they were not. No matter how many fully embossed covers that they uh, put on there, yeah, it just never quite caught on. They were no X-Men, I'll say that. That's for sure. Next up, Mirage Studios, the original home for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comics, announces that they are ceasing publication on any TMNT-related comic books in order to focus on developing the turtles in other media. But don't cry in your turtle soup just yet, because it is mentioned that the books based on the cartoon series published by Archie Comics will continue to be published, and occasional crossovers with other comic book characters could be a possibility. Why would you do that? It's just like, yeah, we're just not going to publish any Ninja Turtles anymore. It's like, that is your cash cow. It's the only thing you have. And then it it didn't last long either. They did just go to all these different publishers. It's like Ninja Turtles forever. (laughs) Yeah. Now, Neil Gaiman spills the beans on an illustrated novel called Stardust that he is creating with artist Charles Vess about a boy named Tristan who goes over the wall into the fairy realm to retrieve a fallen star to prove his love for a girl he has a crush on. But the star ends up taking the form of a woman and adventure ensues. Sound familiar? Well, it should, because the book was made into a film a decade later, starring Claire Danes and future Daredevil Charlie Cox, as well as future Superman Henry Cavill. It was superhero birthing grounds. Stardust, guys, you know this one? I have no knowledge of this. Uh, was, was that a Matthew Vaughn movie? Yeah, I think Matthew Vaughn directed it. My wife loves it, so it's like, she loves Ever After, she loves Stardust, you know, all these fantasy fairy tale movies. Michelle Pfeiffer's actually great in Stardust. I was hoping that, like, Tristan was going to become Ziggy Stardust. That would be kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> that would be hilarious if it was just, like, a backdoor origin to yeah. <laughs> Ziggy Stardust. And finally, Marvel announces that Reed Richards and Doctor Doom will be returning to Fantastic Four comics with issue 404 following a two-year absence from the Marvel Universe, though Doom 2099 was happening during that time. According to Marvel Editor-in-Chief Tom DeFalco, Reed has been through heck. Same goes for Doom 
It won't resemble anything you've seen before. So this was a huge comic book storyline for me and really pulled me into the whole Fantastic Four world. And I think I've told the story on the podcast before about how I had to chase down the issue where Reed died. Yes. And like I spent my entire comic book convention budget on one issue (laughs) as soon as I stepped in the door. Uh, So there was that convention. And so I started subscribing to the comic book just to get through this storyline and like figure out what was going to happen. And I remember like issue 400, they, they had a wake or like a memorial service for Reed Richards. And it just seemed like he was dead. Like I was like, <laughs> all right, that's it. They had the, they had the funeral, like the memorial service. That's it. And like, you know, through this storyline, Invisible Woman really took the front seat. So it was, it was exciting to see that happen. It's just crazy that. Five issues after the wake, they bring back Reed. Doesn't it happen a lot with Fantastic Four? Like, members disappear for an extended period of time. They they replace them on the team. Or even, like, you know, that whole time when Fox was making the Fantastic Four movies and Marvel's just like, nope, (laughs) no Fantastic Four comics. That did happen, yes. Essentially, what happened with that was they did Secret Wars, the reboot version, and essentially killed off the Fantastic Four, but really didn't kill them off sent them into a parallel netherverse and and franklin richards has started rebuilding the multiverse and they were just gone until the rights reversed back to marvel how about that it was a thing you know what's funny about the like you know the return of of reed richards is that shortly after he returned they rebooted the entire series with the heroes reborn storyline oh that's with right Jim lee drawing the fantastic four so it wasn't a very they bring back reed and then they're, they're they go okay we're starting from the beginning because it wasn't a very spectacular reason for them to be gone they were in some alternate dimension or something like that yeah i'm gonna have to read this here because i have like a comic that ties in like doom 2099 with okay. the fantastic four in the 616 universe and it's like it's some sort of explanation that there was something between them so i have to see if it has anything to do with the return but yeah interesting when does the whole like illuminati thing come into play and and all that stuff is that much later was that right before or right after civil war it was kind of in that realm it was right before Civil War, yeah. But guys, I mean, it's a celebratory issue for Wizard, so let's get into our table of contents. Because issue 50, with an October 1995 cover date, features art that is a recoloring of the original Todd McFarlane drawing of Spider-Man in a wizard robe and hat from the first issue, which was originally commissioned as a birthday present for the father of Garib Sheamus before Wizard was even an idea. Now, the origin of that art is explained in several places in this magazine, in different features and interviews, Todd McFarlane himself says, quote, Now in all of my days as a pro, I've probably done 10 drawings outside of my work pages, but I felt they, meaning the Seamus family, promoted Spider-Man, treated kids well at their shop, and most of all treated me well, so it was my way of returning the favor. They asked if they could use my birthday drawing as the cover of their first issue and if I could ink it over to finish it. I said sure, because A, it was good PR, and B, I wouldn't have to do much work. <laughs> And Garib adds to that quote, So as a token of appreciation, we sent him a case or two of hockey cards, because he was a huge hockey fan. So, there you go. The origin of that cover. But this version was spiced up, so to speak, using the Fleer Flare coloring style, which is credited in the masthead to an artist named Jung. And I'll tell you, it looks like a big steaming pile of Jung, fellas. What do you think of this cover? Um... 
lazy? Yeah, I mean, it's weird. Like, it, they swapped the colors on the robe, so instead of purple with uh, white stars, now it's like orange with purple stars, so it's kind of weird that way. I don't know if they were trying to make it gold, but it didn't come out. All the Fleer Flare stuff always just feels like a weird coating on stuff. He's got a concave kneecap as well, <laughs> and a fairly large bulge. <laughs> <laughs> Needed a spider cod piece. But issue 100 is another reimagining of this type of cover. Yes, where they have Alex Ross do the art. That is an improvement over the original. Yeah, so it shows you what was possible. I actually, I recently picked up a promotional poster for this issue that uses the same cover art. Plus, the recolored image was also used for an exclusive overpower card, which was featured in a recent video on our YouTube channel. So all of this came packed inside the special black poly bag for issue 50 that had like the 5 and 0 Zero cut out, but the rest of it was black, so it looked all mysterious. Inside was a Ren and Stimpy mini comic, an X Files promotional trading card, yay X Files, and a DC Comics Underworld event checklist. Do you have any recollection of a crossover event called Underworld, Michael? Only Underworld that I could think of is the uh, you know Kate Beckinsale movies. <laughs> <laughs> so that's all I got. Definitely not related. But let's keep the nostalgia trade flowing here. So this issue focuses heavily on the history of the Guide to Comics up to that point, providing behind-the-scenes details in various features. Editor-in-Chief Pat McCallum writes, Wizard Exposed, where he provides commentary on the previous 50 issues. Highlights include multiple times they angered Marvel and DC by mocking their characters with fart jokes... Or spoiled upcoming character redesigns. Yeah, I'm sure that went over like a lead balloon every time they did that. There's also the reveal that wizard trading cards featuring the original art from their covers were supposed to be packed in with the magazine starting with issue number two, but Marvel nixed the idea because of their Marvel Universe cards, and so the wizard cards never happened. That's kind of a bummer. That would be kind of cool to get like a trading card of the cover. We kind of need Yeah. But also mentioned is the time that the wizard staff temporarily lost original Sam Keith art from an issue of the Max, which he sent over to be scanned for an article. There is even a photo tour of the wizard offices called Behind the Curtain, showing staff goofing around to produce the magazine. What have you guys learned about the magazine by doing the podcast that stands out most? Hmm. Yeah, anything come to mind just like in the amount of time we spend talking about Wizard? <laughs> like, there's, there's something where you're just like, I never considered this. Or I got a couple of things. How many times they were wrong on scoops about movie ideas and movies coming out? That was pretty hilarious that they were so far off so many times. I would also say I didn't fully realize, but being based in New York... I always thought they were closer to the city, and I didn't know they were in Congers in the middle of nowhere, essentially, in the Palisades. <laughs> that I find pretty funny. Yeah, you know, for me, I didn't realize how much they were the tastemakers. Oh, really? I always thought it was more fair and balanced reporting, where it was, <laughs> where someone would, would kind of be breaking through and they would just be reporting on it. I didn't realize how much Wizard was kind of controlling who was in the spotlight and who was getting the heat and who was getting popular. I guess I was kind of naive to that. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. You know, for me, it kind of falls in a similar 
vein is that I really did believe, like so many of us, like the recollection is like all they did was talk about image. That's all they cared about. Even people say like, well, there was a Marvel bias. They never covered DC. But every issue really is balanced. Like they'll have, you know, news about every one of the companies. Like they really did try to, and even in talking to, you know, some of the staffers, they're like, yeah, we tried to make that effort. Like if we didn't have any image news that month, then we did an image movie casting call because we had to do something to represent. So the way that we remember things or the way that it's kind of that Mandela effect that everybody says this is what they remember, but it's not accurate. But next up here, Cheese Whiz is an interview with Garib Seamus about the origins of Wizard, which turns the tables on the big cheese as he is interviewed by Marvel Comics writer Fabian Nicieza. So Garib tells how the Seamus family were sports card collectors who turned that hobby into a business, then added comic books to the mix, and then after he graduated from college, he decided to expand the comic side of the business because it was doing so well, especially when the store manager, Pat McCallum, was pushing to publish a newsletter, which they did, and then expanded into a full-fledged magazine and price guide. He says, quote, It began more from a sense of enthusiasm from wanting to do something as opposed to a sense of money to be made here. And then as Garib tells it, quote, Around issue number seven was where we really started to hit bottom. Even though our sales were the same, all of our production costs were going up because we kept wanting to make the magazine bigger and better. And then it's interesting because thanks to cover art and pack-in trading cards as well by Rob Liefeld... Todd McFarlane and Jim Lee from issues 10 through 12, their fortunes started to turn and then their sales went up and just kept rising after that. And of their relationship with Image Comics, Garib notes, quote, we were both growing together. They wanted to do a lot of stuff with us and us with them. Everybody, meaning Marvel and DC, had lost touch with the marketplace at that point in time, except for Valiant and Image. The fans wanted what they were delivering and what we were delivering editorially. In particular, though, there's one quote given in relation to Garib's thought about how Wizard gauged the interests of the fans. He said, you know, well, we accepted their input and everything we did to improve the magazine that improved sales was because people told us what they liked. But he says, quote, everybody who reads the magazine pretty much works for us. <laughs> so, yep, if you read Wizard Magazine in the 90s, Garib Seamus owned you. That was his <laughs> thought. You were an employee of Wizard Press. <laughs> Alrighty. But the article closes with Fabian noticing a personalized autograph from Cindy Crawford, who was chosen by Wizard to play Mary Jane in a previous casting call. And Garib says, quote, I know Cindy was very excited to see her picture in this magazine. She wrote, to Garib, with love, Cindy Crawford. <laughs> Yes, I'm sure Sidney Crawford was a wizard subscriber. Oh, from the first issue. Go to the comic shop every week. But I'm curious for you guys, what is your take on Garib after reading this interview or what you were able to, to glean from his, his opinions about what they accomplished? I always thought Garib was the coolest human being on the planet. <laughs> if only his co-workers felt the same. He seemed like the nerd who did good. And he seems to have the coolest job in the entire world. I mean, that's for sure. And we all wanted to be him. Like, <laughs> at least I did. I, I thought it'd be great to be Garib Seamus. Yeah, I don't know. I, I always had like a positive attitude towards him. Michael, we've talked about him a lot. You've heard interviews, but like, as you see what he accomplished, what, what are your thoughts? I really, really admire and respect what 
he wanted to do and and did you know for better or worse whatever you know people may have said about him to be successful sometimes you gotta do what you gotta do to pursue your dreams and i was always pretty impressed by that it was the magazine for people like us growing up and he's the spearhead of that so to speak and i think that's a pretty cool thing i'm very fascinated by just his journey because he doesn't seem like the diehard like pat mccallum was definitely like the born and bred comic book fan and garib was the businessman behind it and he said here's a guy who's passionate who can make this magazine something special and i will do all the finagling behind the scenes to make it into something extraordinary and so yeah it's just like they were the great team it's funny you say that the origin of apple in a lot of ways is very similar so steve jobs was the businessman he had a brilliant mind and he was very creative, but he wasn't the technical genius that Steve Wozniak was. The two of them were building the machine together. And then Steve was the one going out and selling this idea of Apple to other people and so on and so forth. And it worked sort of the same way. Like one guy was the real diehard, like I'm going to build a computer chip and I'm going to build a computer. And in the same token, you know, Pat and Garib are kind of the same idea. You know, they just yeah. started essentially in a garage or whatever, you know? Yeah, we're going to learn some more about Garib as the show continues but michael what do we have next here apparently adam isn't the only crazy one keeping tallies of wizard history oh boy here we go figure this is a list of statistics related to wizards accomplishments compiled by staffer mark wilkowski which includes fun facts like the word hot is used 1358 times <laughs> while the X-Men were mentioned 3,065 times. Spider-Man has appeared on the most covers thus far with eight appearances. Eventually we'll get trumped by Wolverine from what we were told by the yeah. Wizard staffers. Eleven covers had featured comic book characters wearing the Wizard robe. Okay, that's cool. The best-selling issue at this point was issue number 35, the Stephen Platt profit cover. It's a biggie. People love that Stephen Platt. Where did you go? <laughs> Profit is coming back, too. They just released a new new Profit book, and Jake Gyllenhaal is making a movie. I was going to say, it's not even new. It's just a reprint, right? I'm, I'm pretty sure Rob Liefeld said, uh-oh. Put a dollar in the jar. <laughs> but he, he said on his podcast, he's like, yeah, we just re-released Profit number one with all these new covers. It's been all over the news feed of comics recently. The worst-selling issue was number five with the Silver Surfer cover. Huh. Peter David was the most interviewed comics pro by Wizard Magazine with five full interviews. So it just means like, you know, every 10th issue they went to Peter David. <laughs> it's like, hey, he lives in the New York area. He's got a lot to say. We'll give him a call. Sounds great. Cool. Okay. Adam's home state of California provided the most letters printed in the magic word section with 113 letters, while his current residence of Montana accounted for zero letters. <laughs> Wow. No, I thought it was so hilarious. They put that in there. Montana, big old goose egg, and I believe it. <laughs> I <laughs> figure it out. Sounds about right. New York, funny enough, was represented with 102 letters. I know I've seen a lot from, like, Jersey. Right. I've seen a lot from, 
like the Carolinas as well, like North Carolina popped up a handful of times. Texas popped up a lot. Ohio popped up a lot too. That's kind of cool that California was the most though, I guess because it's a rest, big state. It is a big state, yes. And finally, the total number of printed pages by Wizard Magazine was just shy of 10,000 with 9,984 pages. We've talked about them all. <laughs> I don't know if that counts the price guide every time, but maybe they want to bump up their numbers, right? I would, yeah, so. I would assume so, yeah. I'm sure it does. Wow, that's, that's all pretty impressive. So speaking of impressive, we knew... <laughs> Very nice transition. <laughs> we Knew Him When is an article highlighting 11 comics professionals who rose to prominence during the four-year publication of the magazine. And it seems like Wizard is taking some credit for their success since they printed their names and pictures so often. Included are Spawn artist Greg Capullo, who's just happy to be working, former lighting store salesman and future Marvel editor-in-chief Joe Casada, singles out his assignments designing Asriel and the Bat Armor for Nightfall as a high point of his career, the previously mentioned Dale Keown reveals that he was trying to make ends meet, playing in a band and working as a butcher's assistant with occasional indie comics gigs before landing the two and a half year job on the Incredible Hulk that made him a superstar. Mike Allred, creator of Madman, quit his job as a newscaster to, to pursue comics full time. Then the publisher who hired him went bankrupt, so he had to sell t-shirts with original designs to make ends meet before launching his creator owned titles to great acclaim. Alex Ross was working in commercial art before setting his sights on living the dream by marching into now comics with a portfolio of samples as he explains nobody hunted me down <laughs> <laughs> catwoman artist jim ballant was a grave digger before getting hired at dc while sam keith says of trying to pursue his dream in comics as a married man if i hadn't gained the capacity to pay her back financially and otherwise i don't think the marriage would have lasted <laughs> that's dark yeah wow <laughs> Billy Tucci was working as a janitor prior to the events that allowed him to self-publish She. Stephen Platt was just a punk college kid who got lucky with some samples sent into Marvel, while Norm Brayfogle was a technical illustrator at an Air Force base, which he describes as a peon job before finding work at D.C. I love that. It's just like, I'm a technical illustrator. That's for chumps. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, Jeff Smith says of working the grill at McDonald's while dreaming of drawing bone comics for a living, no matter how many times I wash that uniform, it always smelled. <laughs> That's a great way to describe the service industry, I would say. So, yeah, so which of these artists do you think owes their career most to Wizard? coverage i guess i would say capullo because he's huge now like he's so sought after nowadays what i'll say is joe casada the reason being even though he was finding his way and getting these assignments on his own he actually stated that garib sheamus is the one who connected him like at marvel to do marvel knights which then led to him becoming editor-in-chief so what do you think about like his last legacy i feel like wizard directly had something to do with that that's who i was going to say because i remember them really pushing him hard oh yeah when he started to come up so that that, that would be my pick as well casada and palmiotti were just like the golden boys at wizard you know mcfarland was just perennial like yes <laughs> he'll always be number one according to us but yeah casada and palmiotti were definitely the the big guys all right well next here moving away from wizard history to a, just a regular feature 
feature of the magazine, Time to Work, is an interview with former X-Men artist Paul Smith, who discusses his opportunity to be a hot artist at Marvel and the choices that led him to become a cautionary tale of what could have been. Apparently, Smith broke into comics through Marvel doing random issues of Iron Man, Howard the Duck, and Doctor Strange. This was after, guys, he worked on the Ralph Bakshi animated Lord of the Rings film. And he's just like, I need something that is more steady work. And so he did those issues. He finally did a short story for X-Men in an issue of Marvel Fanfare. And then right at that time, Dave Cockrum was leaving Uncanny X-Men. And so Paul Smith was given the most lucrative job in comics. And he was just like brand new. He drew 10 issues of Uncanny X-Men and then just decided to jump ship to do Doctor Strange because he liked single characters more than teams. Quote, the whole idea was to make a big name for myself and leave without the big blowout. But after a disagreement with Doctor Strange writer Roger Stern, Smith then left that book after just eight issues. Quote, if I'd stayed on that X-Men book, I'd be a retired multimillionaire now. But at the time, the money didn't even enter my mind. Smith goes odd and odd in this article with stories about how he would just begrudgingly take X-Men assignments that sold really well and like buy a motorcycle, but then would say no to any regular work that he didn't find interesting, instead opting for indie comics projects like Nexus that didn't pay well, yet fulfilled him artistically. But then the Marvel editors, they liked Smith's work so much that they kept hiring him whenever he was willing to do it. X-Men editor Bob Harris says, quote, We go back to Paul because Paul is good. Paul is good. <laughs> and play your, your record backwards. Paul is good. Now 42 years old, Smith says he realized, quote, it was time to grow up, become a man. He began taking jobs that would actually pay the bills. And he talks about, like, I finally have an office where I do my work, a permanent place. Uh, Smith rose again to acclaim, though, in the early 90s with the Golden Age miniseries at DC, written by James Robinson, who was doing Starman at this time. And he is now working on a creator own title with Robinson titled Leave It to Chance while taking Marvel assignments. So Smith admits he wants to be remembered among his peers like John Byrne and Frank Miller, but the infrequency of his work over the years seems to be an impediment to that goal. If Like his name doesn't come up. He says, quote, there's only so many times you can flush your career down the toilet and expect to come back and find an audience. So he's kind of accepted his lot for the choices he made. But had you guys ever heard of Paul Smith prior to this article no negative ghost rider yeah i've only ever heard of him in wizard issues about the x-men like whenever they do a history of the x-men of all the artists that worked on it paul smith is mentioned but only briefly and so it's, it's one of those things you know he just he didn't have a long run on any book so nobody knew who he was but apparently everybody in the industry is like no paul's great so it's kind of sad what do you think about it he just he had an opportunity but he just kind of seemed like he was just had his head in the clouds i guess Sometimes you make your own bed and you gotta lie in it, you know? But uh, what do we have next here, Michael? (laughs) Very well said, Michael. There you go. Fair enough. (laughs) Finally, Gone Buggy is an interview with the Tick creator, Ben Edlund, about how this very infrequent published comic somehow got turned into a successful cartoon show on Saturday mornings. Edlund recalls, I was convinced it was all an elaborate hoax on the part of Fox. (laughs) (laughs) 
It was a cool show, though. I did like that show. Oh, it was the best. The origins of the tick come from a nickname Edlund gave to a friend in school. Then his first concept of the character was even more crazy than what we eventually got because he only spoke French. He was in a mental institution and he was very violent. He was also very furry looking. (laughs) Okay. It was like he was wearing a gorilla suit. After submitting his drawings to New England Comics, the creator was given a deal for The Tick to be published, but admits to not really giving a damn about Deadline. (laughs) It took me five years to do 12 issues, but I didn't get too much heat because the readership was high. Now that The Tick is a success, the comic book is on the back burner with only those initial 12 issues available at this time back in 1995. Did either of you ever read the Tix comics after seeing the cartoon? I don't think so. I will admit not at all. And I love the cartoon and I love the toys. Did the com- I feel like the comic book shot up in price after the cartoon. I would assume so. Yeah, it definitely did. But I bought a trade in the late 90s called The Naked City, which is like the first <laughs> few issues. And a lot of it, just like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, is just a parody of Frank Miller's Daredevil. There's an Electra character in there named Oedipus. I think she is a background character that is silent in an, one of the episodes of the animated series, but she was like a major character for him and it's all about like the tick fighting ninjas there's a superman parody he ends up going to work at like the daily planet analog where he's battling superman for his job and all this stuff so i definitely did and then whenever i could pick up random issues and back issue bins for cheap because like you said steven they kind of went up i would grab them and they're fun my favorite though is called the chainsaw vigilante he appeared in tick comics then he got his own spinoff comic that actually had like a shiny chrome covered stuff but he has like just this paper mask with kind of a smiley face that he drew on it he's got this big curly red hair that comes out the top he wears a leather jacket and he has a chainsaw and he's just a maniac that runs around and you know avenges evil or whatever (laughs) yeah the chainsaw vigilante check it out but now i think it's time to see what other heroes jumped from the page to the screen as we discuss heroes in motion So lots of big news this month. Mike Allred's Madman is announced as being on the boards at Universal Studios for either a fall 1995 or spring 96 start. Apparently the film rights had been optioned since 1992. The never produced film is reportedly budgeted at 20 to 30 million dollars and Allred admits to having a background in filmmaking so he will likely be both scripting, directing and producing the film. Allred reveals that comedy illusionists Penn and Teller have agreed to play Madman characters Mott the Hoople and Dr. Beauford if the film gets made. Unfortunately, it does not. Yeah, this continues for many years. It always seems to be a development. We never get it, but I can't believe it. Universal Studios, $30 million, and then we just never got it? I'm shocked that at this point, a streamer hasn't bought it to make us a miniseries of some sort. It is pretty surprising that through all these years, and like the Rodriguez version never happened. And I think at certain points he was saying that certain actors, big name actors, were attached and it was going to happen and then it just never does. 
Yeah. So I just wonder if he's the one who ends up pulling the plug, you know, in the end, because he doesn't like where it's going, or if it just is something that always fizzles out eventually. People just don't get it. I don't know. You know, it's such a personal book, Mm -hmm. so specific to its medium. Not that it's impossible to adapt those kinds of things, but it would be difficult. So I also think the studio, they may not have been fully open to giving a first time feature director. Hey, you're going to write it. You're going to produce it. And you're going to direct a thing. We're going to give you $30 million for that might have been part of the tipping point, I guess. This is the same time as something like Mallrats, which probably had a similar budget if we ever get him for an interview one of these days electric can you just lay it out to us why a nomad man film yeah actually the the mall rats budget was six million so maybe someday that it would be pretty great to see a madman movie i think in more news billy tucci gives an update about his plans to turn she into a live action movie i'll be coming out to san diego for the con and then going up to los angeles to meet with some people at that point we might have a deal or maybe we won't who knows <laughs> Tucci does get a deal, but as revealed in our interview on The Wizard Files, he eventually pulls the plug after disagreements with the writing and producing team years down the line. Okay, that was your one shot. Cool. Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer shares her enthusiasm over starring in a Catwoman solo film while admitting to the rigorous physical demands of wearing the catsuit on Batman Returns. The boots were literally so high I would topple over, and the suit... I could only wear for about three hours because after that, it would be vacuum-packed. Initially, they hadn't given me any way to go to the bathroom. They worked that out. (laughs) Then the corset and cap was too tight, and the claws would get caught on everything. And then I'd have to get all shined up, and then they would spray silicone all over me. (laughs) So do you think she'll be back in costume for the Flashpoint movie? After that experience. And also to that point... Because it seems like the Batman costume was also a prison cell. And Michael Keaton is going to be playing Batman again. Is he going to be wearing that incredibly uncomfortable costume at 70 years old? Yeah, because that's why I'm like, are they, are they just Bruce and Selina? Or are we going to get that moment where they get back in costume? That's what we're waiting to see. So if you follow Michelle Pfeiffer on Instagram, her very, very first Instagram post is her practicing using the whip in the backyard and saying she still got it. Yeah, so I think she's still passionate about it, for sure. She loves that character. I would assume that she may appear in the movie. The only thing that that's a problem, possibly, is they were filming the Ant-Man sequel the same time as they were filming the Flash movie. Oh. And she's in the Quantumanium movie. Yeah. So it's hard to say she's going to be in both. She may be in as a cameo. I don't know if she's going to be in costume. Allegedly, he's going to be in costume at some point because it's even in the trailer where they see him from behind. Mm -hmm. Cool. You got to put him in the costume. That's the money shot. And he's going to be in the Batgirl HBO Max movie. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's 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 the Batman in that movie. There's rumors that they're going to introduce Dick Grayson in that movie. I've Hmm. seen those rumors because there's a mural, like a painted mural of Batman. And And Robin. Robin. Yeah. That'd be cool. Speaking of other comic book characters that I love uh, in movies, Chris Columbus is still reportedly trying to get a live action Fantastic Four film into pre-production after two years, but admits the main issue is you need a good script. Many of these comic book movies just rely on the characters 
which I don't think is enough. The director of Home Alone also adds, I think we need cooler costumes than Batman. I don't want some Fantastic Four characters to be laughable. By the way, hey, Chris Columbus, thanks for, uh, you know, making sure that Fox bought up the rights to the uh, Corman Fantastic Four, which I never got a chance to see. So you could never make a Fantastic Four movie. But then you made Stepmom and Bicentennial Man. Thanks for those. (laughs) I'm not better. Uh, so there's a lot of buzz right now about the Fantastic Four entering the MCU. Uh, what's everyone's thoughts on this? Well, I know casting-wise, all I keep seeing is John Krasinski. Look, we modified this picture. He's perfect, guys. He's perfect. I'm like, oh, I guess. I don't I don't see him as the Brainiac character, but I'm sure for the MCU, he would fit the attitude. He's great in Jack Ryan, I'll tell you that much. He's, yeah? He's a no. brainy guy in that, so. Yeah. He'll be fine. Whatever. <laughs> I mean, if it's not the Corbin Fantastic Four cast, you just don't care, do you? If Steven? it's not Alex Hyde White, I don't know why I'm watching it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, look, it's about time the Fantastic Four came into the MCU, and and I, I'm really curious to see how they do it, how they work them in, and. Uh, I think with this whole multiverse thing, there's a chance in a really cool way to show that they were the first team and first superhero team. And Mm -hmm. yeah, it's just the possibilities are endless. We will wait and see. Michael, are you going to put down a wager? Anything? (laughs) You got Mephisto on the table. Yes, I do. I am very excited for Fantastic Four. I hope it gets teased in Doctor Strange. I think if either that or... Something is going to be alluded to in the next season of Loki, I feel like. I heard that in the Black Widow movie, there's a deleted scene or deleted line of dialogue where she references uh, Latvia, or how do you pronounce it? Latveria? Wow. Latveria, yeah. Okay. It was cut out of the movie because of they weren't ready to introduce that to the world yet. <laughs> well, there's some rumors, and, and I, I don't know if I'm spoiling anything, that Doctor Doom is involved in Black Panther 2, Wakanda Forever. Oh, that's even cooler. And, and he's the it. cause of the war that's going I, on. I thought Namor was supposed to be in that movie, too. Yeah, and that's the rumor is that Doom pits Wakanda against Atlantis. Oh, interesting. That's the rumor. I don't know how true it is, but it'd be pretty neat to involve him. So next, in another movie I I would have been super excited for in the mid-90s, Dark Horse is developing a live-action Green Hornet for a 1996 release that, quote, won't come across as a Batman ripoff. Of the title character, it stated... Quote, he'll be balls to the wall, swinging across cables and shooting guns. And of the Green Hornet sidekick made famous by Bruce Lee in the 60s TV series, the Dark Horse executive promises Kato will be a much drunker character. Fireballs will fly out of his hands. (laughs) God, that sounds like the worst version of Green Hornet. Yeah. I was going to say they still haven't cracked a Green Hornet movie, but they did make a Green Hornet movie that I always forget about. The Seth Rogen one? Yeah, I saw that in theaters. Me too. It could have been a good movie if Seth Rogen didn't play Brett yes. Reed. He's just not right. You just, some roles just you cannot fit no matter how muscular and how much weight you lose. It doesn't matter. It did not work in that regard. And yeah, like at this time, George Clooney was the big name rumored for Green Hornet. Mm. And then he did uh, Batman instead. 
So there you go. Uh, Richard Donner and his wife, Lawrence Schuler Donner, are actively developing both Speed Racer and X-Men films, though their vision of the animated Japanese racing adventure series doesn't get made until the post-Matrix Wachowski siblings get a hold of it. X-Men does. Schuler Donner reveals her thoughts for casting at this time, asking, who do you think should be Wolverine? What about Gary Sinise? Take that, Danny DeVito. Gary Sinise, baby. That would actually have been good, don't you think, Lieutenant no, Dan? I don't. The intensity, the anger of Lieutenant Dan as Wolverine? I like Gary Sinise. I think he's a very good person who does a lot of really good things, and he's yes. been good in a lot of things. I once saw him in a live stage production of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest on Broadway. Oh, I bet that was awesome. It was not great. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's hard to match Jack Nicholson, and he didn't really match Jack Nicholson. So maybe that was my holdup, but I don't know about Sinise as Wolverine. I don't think it would have worked. I'm on record as not liking Jackman, so anybody's better than Jackman, and I would have gone with Sinise. I I would have been on board with that. That's fine. Okay, so finally there is a casting call for a Spawn movie in this issue, even though the live-action film from New Line Cinema is in active pre-production at this time, according to Todd McFarlane, and does come out in 1997. Yay. That's one of the worst comic book movies I've ever seen. Uh, no. It's not great, but I think for what it is, like, it's entertaining. It at least represents the characters in a way where you're just like, I recognize them. (laughs) I don't know. I feel like I like barbed wire more. Oh, no. 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 Tank Girl is the worst comic book movie, in my opinion. Tank Girl's pretty bad. That's rough. All right, well, let's talk about who they cast here, because for the Al Simmons Spawn character, they want this guy, Mario Van Peebles. Yes, Solo himself. Do you guys remember that movie he was in where he was some, like, programmed space soldier? Solo. Yeah, Solo, right. And then Kurt Russell was in Soldier. There was Solo and Soldier. They were almost identical. And there's also (laughs) Universal Soldier as well. Yes. Yeah, I like Mary Van Peebles. I actually, uh, when I used to intern for the Tribeca Film Festival, I saw uh, a movie that he directed and starred in called Badass. Oh. And I went to his Q&A and he was awesome. So he'd be a great choice. He seemed like a cool dude. Like super cool. (laughs) For Wanda Blake, which is Al Simmons' wife, they were thinking Halle Berry. Here they're saying she was from the Flintstones movie. (laughs) (laughs) Where she played Sharon Stone. Exactly. Uh, But I think that's fine. Better than Catwoman. Let her play Wanda Blake. Sure. Terry Fitzgerald, Leon. Do you guys know what movie Leon is from? Like Leon the Professional? Not Leon the Professional, no. This is Leon was one of the henchmen in Cliffhanger. Like Here they're also saying he was in the movie Above the Rim. He went to my junior college I went to in Southern California in Orange County. He was one of our alumni. <laughs> Oh, really? Wow. Yes, that was our claim to fame. Diane Keaton and Leon. Wow. Yeah. For Overkill, who was part of a video with Todd McFarlane and Rob Liefeld creating a character on camera with Stan Lee looking over their shoulder and mocking them. Overkill. They want Chris Zorch of the Chicago Bears. Anybody? Is he a bad dude? He's not even a well-known football player. (laughs) (laughs) But he was bald, and in this picture, he is angry, so. Okay, close enough. For Chapel is a name I know you've heard of. Chapel, the character, of course, created by... Blob Kreifeld, but who has worked into the Spawn mythos for killing Al Simmons. They wanted, ooh, LT, Lawrence Taylor. So he was playing for the New York Giants at this time. How did you guys feel about Lawrence Taylor? 
I love Lawrence Taylor. I have his Funko Pop. I love Lawrence Taylor. He wow. is the greatest defenseman that ever played, like bar none. Everyone still uh, talks about him. I, I, I know nothing about him. But you were watching wrestling in the early 90s. He faced off against Bam Bam Bigelow at a WrestleMania. <laughs> I was out by that point, but I do remember hearing about that. So that was the main event, right? Yeah, that Bam was the Bam main Bigelow event. Versus, okay. LT, baby. I did not see that. Also, he has that great cameo with the Waterboy. Don't do crack. <laughs> and he's also in Any Given Sunday. Oh, okay. A movie I've never seen. Oh, I hate that movie. I know oh, you do. One, one of the worst movies I've ever seen. What? You're Top an insane person. I hate it. Now, for The Violator slash The Clown, they want Al Lewis, Grandpa Munster. What? He's still alive <laughs> like, at this what, point? what, 90 at this point? Yeah, he was super old, but he was still kicking in the 90s. I mean, he, he was showing up here and there, but that is just, that's crazy. He owned a pizzeria in the city. Oh, really? Yeah. And you ran into him a few times when you got a slice? I never got a slice there, but I do remember that happening. He was in his mid-70s at this point. Yeah, I mean, I love Al Lewis. I just, yeah. I, don't, I don't think he was the right choice for Bob. <laughs> <laughs> for Angela, they want Kelly Lynch from Roadhouse, and yes, Curly Sue. Everybody loves Curly Sue. I know I do. Yeah. I'm just trying to think, like, why Kelly Lynch? She just had the attitude. Uh, I was just recently reading some Angela comics for an upcoming mini-episode review, and I was like, oh, she's a very different character than I imagined. So, for Mal Bolgia, a.k.a. The Devil, Jeremy Irons. Yeah, that's pretty perfect. Yeah. Play The Devil, play Alfred, yeah. For Tony Twist, Mob Boss, from Goodfellas, and, of course, The Rocketeer, Paul Sorvino. Yeah, once again, perfect. Yes. For every mobster, right? <laughs> no, triple my price. <laughs> For Jason Wynn, the devious supreme director of U.S. intelligence agencies, John Rhys Davies. From Sliders. <laughs> the first kingpin. Exactly. I was going to say, he's already had a similar role. He could do it. This next one, though, Sam and Twitch are the detectives of the Spawn universe. And for Sam, they wanted Chris Farley. And for Twitch, they wanted Michael Jeter from Evening Shade. Michael Jeter from Evening Shade, I have been pitching for all sorts of casting. He is a guy that comes to mind for me all the time. So I'm glad to see him officially here. He was great. He was a great actor. But what do you think of Chris Farley as a hard-boiled detective? Oh, I think both these choices would be great. They are the comic relief of Spawn. Yeah, so. for sure. Yeah. Now, there is a character in the Spawn comics, I remember reading through him and finding this character named Garab, who is one of the bums in the alley, and they say here, well, we wanted to get our own Garab Seamus to play the bum in the alley, but we feel his twin brother Bill Barr from Comedy Central's Politically Incorrect would be better. That's just a gag. And then finally, for the anti-Spawn or the Redeemer, Michael Ironside from Top Gun and Total Recall, but I know him best from Hello Mary Lou, Prom Night 2. <laughs> If you have not seen that movie, check it out. So much fun. So wacky. I have seen that movie. I have not seen that movie. Oh, it's crazy. It is. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I love Michael Ironside and everything. I'm I'm all on Michael Ironside. Well, speaking of Spawn, guys, it's time to learn even more about Todd McFarlane in Jim and Todd's Hype Machine. For 
First up here in Ghibli news. Hey guys, old Jim won the Yellow Kid Award for Best Foreign Penciler from the Italian International Comics and Cartooning Exhibition. For those who don't know, the Yellow Kid is like cited as like the first comic book ever. So that that's kind of why I guess they created that particular award with that name. Jim has also popped back onto the top 10 hot artist list in the number three spot this time. Speaking of which, Garib got asked in his interview about the rankings. The interviewer, Fabian, asked, what are your feelings on the magazine's ability to help create somebody who is hot and in a way abandon them when they're no longer hot? <laughs> Ooh, the hard-hitting questions. And that Garib's response was, quote, there will always be people that have the hit movie or the hit song or the hit book, whatever. That will come onto the list and they will only be as good as their last movie or their last book. If it's not good, you know they will be off the list. So, <laughs> totally deflecting. <laughs> <laughs> you should be a politician. You're doing great there, Garib. It doesn't account for Jim Lee, though, being back on the list, his answer, since Jim hadn't drawn a book in like a year at this point. So, we're going to call Seamus shenanigans on that particular explanation. Did you guys ever pay attention to the top 10 rankings when you were reading through Wizard Magazine? Did it matter to you? I think I did, but not all the time. I, I definitely paid attention. I was definitely curious as to see who was you know in the rank it almost reminded me of like did you guys read wrestling magazines when you were a kid i did i would flip through them at barnes and noble or whatever pro wrestling illustrator always had the top 10 wrestlers like in the u.s <laughs> and in the world and in wcw and in wwf and you'd be like okay yeah people love a list i gotta tell you like i posted from the last issue the top 10 artists and writers list and everybody was retweeting it everybody i mean like everybody has an opinion when it's a top 10 list. The only top 10 list that mattered in the 1990s was on David Letterman, period. Come on. Right, Paul? Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. Now, The Many Faces of Todd is a photo diary of a day in the life of the comic book artist slash toy and multimedia mogul. Wizard boasts proudly, quote, never before has he let anyone photograph him in his glasses, which he wears at the board. So, yes, we get to see Todd McFarlane looking like a geek. And he does indeed. These are big, thick, like 80s style glasses. They're hilarious. But we also in the pictures see Todd approving Spawn merchandise like sneakers and pods and video games, in addition to action figure prototypes, about which he says, quote, Toys are a kooky business. They take a lot of my time. McFarlane is unrecognizable, though, in the photo of him taking a lunch break to eat Taco Bell. He's got a hat on, he's got glasses on, he's just at a weird angle. He says he's talking about who has the ugliest feet with his friends and office mates, because you talk about feet when you're eating. It's just gross. It's gross. Anyway, Todd even watches a test reel of animation footage for the Spawn animated series on HBO, and he also shows off his high-end collectibles from sports and music celebrities, which includes Madonna's bustier and uniform from A League of Their Own, and signed equipment, like vintage equipment, from Nolan Ryan, Lou Gehrig, Honus Wagner, and Babe Ruth. Wow. How much did he spend on this stuff? I'm sure that was part of his touring museum with the uh, home run race balls that eventually awesome. became worthless. <laughs> 
what's crazy though is I used to work just a few miles from Todd's offices in Scottsdale, Arizona. I even ran into him at a movie theater once, and I just wish I had been doing the show back then because I probably could have just scored an interview, bought him some Taco Bell, and be like, "Come on, Todd, let's talk." <laughs> I'm just curious for you guys though, what is your opinion of Todd McFarlane now? Was there a difference in how you thought about him back then versus what you think of him now? I think he's pretty awesome. I mean, he he did so much, you know, not only for comic books, but for action figures. And he's a person who had a big vision and delivered on that vision. I mean, he essentially changed the toy industry as we know it. He made action figures collectibles. They were collectibles before, but not to the extent of like they were not pieces of art, so to speak. I think he's still kind of that kid, though. Like nowadays, he promotes his new products that are coming out. He talks about them with such like levity and joy and excitement about action figures that his company's making even today. Yeah, it's it's nice. And that, that I think I just enjoy about him because. They also, in this article, like, there's a lot about just him, you know, talking about his wife and his kids and, like, going to pick up his daughter at daycare and how all the other moms are jealous that their husbands won't do it. <laughs> He's a family man. He's a good businessman. And what's interesting is I've always heard, like, oh, he's controversial. He said a lot of stupid things back in the 90s, criticizing other creators and things. Those conspicuously have not showed up in the pages of Wizard, no matter how many other <laughs> artists and writers uh, get their remarks printed but because there was that documentary like when spawn 300 was coming out and it seems like he has evolved as a person over the years wizard also reports that mcfarlane had to change the name of his todd toys company because mattel had a todd character in their line of barbie dolls and they seem to be insinuating the threat of legal action by informing him of this fact so as a result now and forevermore the company was to be known as mcfarlane toys and of course, as Michael said, still wowing us with amazing figures to date. You know, I saw this post the other day where they said, like, oh, you know, new Batman figures at Target. I'm like, yeah, good luck finding that at Target. I've gotten them at Target. Did you order it or did you go to the store? What I just got in the mail yesterday, holy crow i was it's i i ordered this one online but i go there every once in a while and i get batgirls batmans they they pop up targets you just gotta know when to go when to look tuesdays folks tuesdays okay oh that's awesome though cool you have to give us some pictures of that with that giant cape folded out there oh yeah i have it on my display now i ordered that like new york comic-con one with the big cape blowing and everything in july and it came yesterday (laughs) at least it's there and it's safe that's the important thing. Now, closing out on some wizard history, finally, in Todd's ego column, he recounts the tale of how he first met Garib Seamus and his family. So initially, McFarland met the Seamus clan at the San Diego Comic-Con in 1989 because they shared a common interest as sports card collectors. And then the Seamus mobile was his ride from an airport to a New York convention the next year, after which Todd did a signing at their family-owned cards and comic store. And after the signing, they started trading rare sports cards to Todd for his original art. According to McFarlane, quote, this was when I realized that Garib's family was a bunch of sharks. (laughs) 
This trade eventually included the original cover art for Spider-Man number one. Yes, that Spider-Man number one cover. Quote, when all was said and done, Garib and his family owned, and still own, more of my artwork than anyone else. Wow. I do know that Garib sold off, like, a lot of his art just a few years back. I'm going to assume the Spider-Man number one was in there, but I don't know for sure. I'll have to do some research. But what's funny is, after this trade, they also hit him up for the original birthday art commission, which became the wizard number one cover. So they were just like, how about this? How about this, Todd? Todd! Wow. <laughs> but anyway, Todd closes out by saying, quote, before the Seamus family started Wizard, I thought they could be dangerous. They are very focused. They get what they want, and they don't take no for an answer. Even though we have totally different styles, I admire their conviction to have a goal in life. On some weird kind of level, Wizard is what it is because of that family unity. So, brings us to the tally now. This issue, Jim Lee mentioned six times, but Todd McFarlane trumps him with 11 mentions. That brings our total to Jim Lee, 276, and Todd McFarlane cracking 300 with 304! Woohoo! Whoa. Can you believe it? He had his spawn 300, and now he's cracked the 300 mark in the Jim and Todd's hype machine tally. So add that to your wall of accomplishments. And one more bit of fun here, Michael, because you mentioned Letterman, so I think it's time for... Turok's Top Ten! So, for tonight's top ten list, we've got the top ten beefs Marvel Comics has with Wizard, the guide to comics. Number ten. Like, duh, Marvel does books other than X-Men and Spider-Man. They do? I guess. (laughs) And DC does other books other than Batman? (laughs) Number nine. Wizard nixed Marvel's Spider-Man Wizard Maximum Garib crossover proposal. <laughs> that would, that would that. be great. I would, I would really, love. I would definitely read that. I would read that too. Number eight, Wizard's lack of coverage led to the cancellation of Terror Incorporated. Oh, Wizard definitely should have given that book more love. I dig it. Yeah, sure. I remember you making me read it. <laughs> Did not enjoy it. Okay, number seven. Wizards always so darn right. (laughs) Number six. Squirrel Girl, not part of issue number 48's Babes cover. Oh, Squirrel Girl. She had her day. Squirrel Girl's a cool character. I I know. People love her. She's really fun. They did a whole reboot of her a couple years ago that I think your daughters are probably old enough now that they can read it. It's not inappropriate at all it's really kind of fun and cute if my daughter wouldn't say i hate comic books got her rainbow bright comic she read it eventually thanks kid you just broke my heart (laughs) (laughs) number five wizard only comes out once a month because you know marvel just they love that wizard they want more and more number four Wizard knows upcoming Marvel storylines before Marvel does. (laughs) Number three, Todd McFarlane only gets one page to bash Marvel each month. Very true. That ego column. He lets him have it. Number two, Wizard doesn't give poor Frank Miller enough opportunities to express his true feelings about Marvel. Poor Frank Miller. (laughs) 
And the number one beef Marvel Comics has with Wizard, the guide to comics, is due to copyright laws, Marvel can never reveal that Garib Sheamus is the true Peter Parker. <laughs> oh, good times. Gotta get one more jab at the spider clone in when you can. Well, guys, we're getting ready to wrap up this episode and say farewell for now, but we have another farewell that we have to get to. It is with heavy heart that I turn the mic over to Steven Sapellis for some news. So, you know, when this podcast started, I was working remotely, and so I had a lot more time. In September, I started a new job, and I've been traveling quite a bit for work, which means I can't continue being a full-time host for Wizards, unfortunately. I can come on as a special guest star every now and again, but uh, this particular episode marks my final one as a full-time host. Oh, and we are going to miss you, man. I mean, I, I've told Michael this, that you, I just feel like you were the perfect middle ground. You know, like I'm this obsessive guy researching everything. I'm just, I'm all about it. Michael's just shows up. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm just a fart in the wind. <laughs> <laughs> and then you are the guy right in the middle. You got enough information. You're going to do some of the research. You don't got to do it all, but you're ready to go when we get on the mic. And you reel us both in. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you know, making friends when we were all in quarantine was very important. And I think it did well for all of us. Yeah, it was a yeah. really nice thing. And, and it's been great becoming friends with you guys over these last couple of years. And that will continue. And I'll be on as, as much as you'll let me. Uh. <laughs> but Stephen, I have prepared something special to send you off in style oh, that I Lord. think it is time that we take a listen to now. I'm going to do live commentary. Oh, my God. It's a cover of Seals' Kiss from a Rose. There used to be a Wizards podcast about old magazines. But you became the nerd who turned two into three. Generation X, a movie you'll defend with your life. But did you know Heather McComb? Would say our names clearly on cameo as Jubilee. Stephen, we have to say goodbye, <laughs> but first listen now as we sing. Ooh, you're Kyle Rayner, but you don't need a Green Lantern ring. And now that <laughs> your lantern shirt's on, it's your Emerald Dawn I'm of very touched, very personal. It is very personal. It's very long, too. There's another verse. Wow, folks. I hope you enjoy this. Batman forever, you know you are its number one fan. But Michael says that Keaton is always the man. Steven, with Carmen's Fantastic Four, you know you're quite obsessed. So won't you tell me, is it healthy man? And can't you see, objectively, it's sad with no budget and embarrassing to old Stan Lee. There's a new coin coming in. Steven! 
said we have oh to say God. goodbye. You're I walking away from the mic. Who to see O'Donnell's robbing you sold off your childhood bike. And it's still and going. Now that you're leaving the show, we want you to know you'll be missed. Oh, I'm going to hear that in my nightmares now. (laughs) This is after Michael admitted he hates that song and that entire soundtrack. Oh, come on. It's a great soundtrack. That song is horrible. Is my version better? Your version is marginally better than the Seal version. And I don't dislike seal i like seal a lot i just hate that song <laughs> thank you adam you are welcome yeah i had had to poke a little fun at you there but i think yeah it's just it's been so awesome doing the show with you and yeah like you said just being friends and we will uh continue to have all our conversations off the mic as we have been doing so we'll we'll have you back as often as we can but michael are you coming back after that song are you mad i didn't write a song about you oh i'm glad you didn't write a song about this <laughs> Just don't leave the podcast or I will. Oh. That's the threat. Okay, duly noted. Um, <laughs> yes, I'll be back. Just trying to figure out my life schedule with my new class and everything. And I'm teaching intro to film. It's in person. It's And I'll be back for 52. Yeah, so that is the great news is that Steven will be back for episode 52 along with his wife, Annie Flowers, to talk X-Files in comics. This is an episode that's been in the planning for quite a while, so we're looking forward to that. His first guest appearance. <laughs> Again, thank you all for listening. Thank you for checking out the podcast, for telling your friends. Have you left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts? Why don't you get on over there? Are you retweeting? Are you sharing? Of course you are, because you are great people, and we love having you. Be sure to be in touch with us, though, at Wizards Comics on Twitter, at Wizards underscore Comics on Instagram, the YouTube channel. Guys, we're cranking it up for 2022. We're bringing you more and more videos. Lots of fun stuff over there. So stay informed, stay in touch, and until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. That was fun. fun. That was a good one.